Welcome to Education Conversations, where educators talk about the most important issues facing education. Our mission is to ignite your mission through the exploration of difficult and relevant topics. When we come together to talk, open ourselves to new ideas, we move closer together as a people. Well, welcome, everybody. Again, we're going to uh, continue our conversation with Michael DeAngelis, who is uh, our Canadian administrator colleague um, and uh, who's, who's uh, had many years of experience as an educator in Canada, both at the elementary and high school levels in the K, uh, K-12, K-13 system in, in Canada, and also uh, did a stint as a clinical professor at the University of Toronto at the end of uh, his his uh, professional career, uh, Michael, welcome back. And you know, you, you had you you had just been kind of talking to us a little bit about how you addressed uh, maybe um, a deficit of um, you know teachers of color uh, for for the schools that you worked in. Can you just kind of continue to walk us through that process and your thinking around that? Um, yeah, I I would say that there was a high degree of intentionality, uh, particularly in staffing uh, the, uh, the school that I opened. Um, again, you know, the hiring practices and the, the process proceeds within a, a highly unionized setting. Um, so there, there's some stylized and cons some constraints within that. Uh, but I didn't find uh, an inability to, um, to develop and to hire uh, representative staff uh, because we had a large pool of qualified individuals who happened to be from those ethnic and racial um, communities and backgrounds. Um, and again, I think that I was lucky to be seated where I was. I was lucky to be in an expanding board um, of education that was allowing me opportunities to hire. Um, you know, in my previous school, many of my staff members were sconched there, you know, um, and quite legally and rightly, um, 10 or 12 year teachers that who, if they wished, could have stayed in that school for 30 years. Um, so that intentionality comes around uh, when opportunities arise to, to hire. Uh, and it, it can't be uh, a hiring process that speaks to any kind of tokenism. It was based on merit. It was based on um, the abilities to provide the kind of learning and the opportunities in the environment for our students. Um, so I was lucky uh, from that standpoint that I had many opportunities to hire. And I was in a dynamic board where there was movement of staff. So every year there was turnover. Uh, I was never, I never felt stymied. Um, I think probably the most important work I did, though, uh, and I mentioned it to Corey, was at uh, the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education when we re-looked at our application process um, to ensure that we weren't, weren't screening out strong candidates who just couldn't meet a criteria that was, you know, older, developed in a different time, it was no longer applicable. Um, so I think that that was critical um, because it certainly allowed us to increase the diversity within the, the student teacher candidate body 
which again translated into qualified teachers going into school systems. So that was that was a very important work. Yeah, it's interesting that you had, you know, applications and candidates, you know, available to you for consideration. You know, a lot of times, frankly, um, you know, the, the United States is a pretty segregated uh, place, you know, so everybody who looks alike lives in their place. And, um, you know, creating a bubble of comfort for people to move outside of, um, you know, where, where they're where they're working and feel safe. Um, is often difficult to do here as an administrator and to keep people, you know, in a, a position for a longer period of time, you know, where maybe they don't have others that look like them except uh, the students. So, so it creates sort of some, some artificial challenges for you as a principal and just kind of creating, you know, that environment. Corey, do you, is that an accurate way to sort of depict this? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know if those are the same sorts of issues that you'd experience in no, Canada. No, not at all. Um, you know, we we didn't have an ability to retain teachers. Um, we didn't have uh, situations that were so homogeneous that if you came into it, uh, you would feel the outsider. Um, and again, that was you know becoming increasingly increasingly more inclusive as we enhance uh, the diversity within our teaching staffs. Um, you know, my teaching staff at the last school, I don't know in terms of representative groups how many I would have had um, there, but we were certainly representative of the, not only the community, but the, the student body. Um, because we don't seem to have the same um, situation when it comes to uh, consolidated populations within geographic areas, other than when I was speaking about uh, these enclaves that were developing predominantly in, in ethnic uh, communities of a more recent immigration uh, experience. And again, it's natural. You, you know, you want to be with individuals that speak your language, want to be uh, around uh, grocery stores that carry the food that you enjoy. So there's a natural affinity. Um, but there's there are waves uh, and geographical shifts um, in immigration. I lived in downtown Toronto. It was predominantly Italian where I was. Then we moved out to the suburbs. So everyone is, is on the move. Um, and some are being driven out by cost of housing. Some are being attracted by affordable housing. And that's going to be an increasing issue, I think, in Canada. The cost of housing is astronomical. You know, to get a starter home in, in the city of Toronto, you need about a million dollars. And that's for that's a fixer-upper. Um, so if you are, you know, a recent immigrant, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to reside um, in those areas, unless you're in multi-family uh, dwellings, and I found that a lot in my uh, East Indian community, lots of lots of opportunities um, to meet all the family members in one residence. You know, from grandma and grandpa, you know, aunts and uncles, everyone in the in the same location. So, 
that's a similar economic issue, I think, here, Michael, too. I mean, you know, generational wealth is an issue. Um, you know, part of part of what you talked about, though, is you talked about, you know, um, things like grocery stores where my, the food I prefer is sold or, um, you know, the restaurants uh, serve food that I that I like to eat. The, the issues in the United States are um, often that are most impoverished and, um, the, you know, the black Americans live in neighborhoods where you'd have to drive quite a ways to get to a grocery store and, um, you know, redlining no practices for years, isolated them and that sort of thing. Yeah, no food security. And, you know, another, um, I think, positive factor that we have, like uh, the issue around the schools and, uh, you know, confronting social issues. You know, I, I look at it from the standpoint of a Venn diagram, Venn diagram and where the intersection point is, is the student. We've got the family, the school, and society. We, we live in a country in Canada, um, you know, so limited social welfare state. Uh, everyone gets free medical. Yeah, how's that uh, work, Michael? You look pretty healthy. It works really well. Uh, Nobody in America believes that, so I just thought I'd ask the Canadian while we had you here. No, I look really, I, I look really good for, I'm going to be 68 years old. Um, but we have other social supports as well during covid um, you know, we had a system, if you were out of work, where you were paid. Um, we have a problem with people not wanting to go back to work. That seems fairly common everywhere these days. Yeah. Um, yes, sir. You know, we have unemployment insurance. We have, once that runs out, we have uh, welfare. Um, so I think from that standpoint, the, the measure of how well we do is how well we're supporting the least able within um, our society. Um, and there's going to be times where, you know, if we look at, at our students, that the family cannot be an equal part of the Venn diagram. So society has to increase their involvement or the school has to increase their involvement with, with the student. Um, well, that's an interesting so, notion. So, so there isn't this, you know, um, individualistic way of looking at, uh, you know, my rights, my, there is still some sense of the common good and the notion that my individual rights may be surrendered at the point of the common good. Yeah, I think that that is different. You know, and you know, we've had this conversation uh, a little bit before, um, and it's like this protest in Ottawa. At what point do the rights of the individual supplant the rights of many? And you know, you can look at you can look at Hobbes, and you can look at Stuart Mill. You can look at all those uh, people who've contemplated the same questions. Uh, I think here, um, and even being in this province is, is interesting because it has such a small uh, tax base. So much of what goes on here is voluntary. I'm on, you know, three volunteer boards down here. Um, you know, if, if someone's house burns down, they have a fundraiser. Like, you know, they there's a, there's a sense of community and there's a sense of something being bigger than oneself. Um, you know, down here, 92% of the people in Nova Scotia are vaccinated. So that tells you, you know, they're doing it for their own good, but they're also doing it for anyone that's in a, uh, in a compromised health situation or too young to get a vaccine. So there is that sense of, um, of community. And 
you know, like people don't get me wrong. People in Canada like to make money and I have no problem with anyone that works hard, makes money. Um, but you know, the minimum wage in Ontario is 15 bucks an hour. Um, I think the notion of a living wage, um, is something that, you know, I'm behind a hundred percent. It's pretty hard for a kid to go off to school when the stress and strain of not having food in the home or not, uh, having parents or having parents that are so stressed out because they can't make their bills. That's pretty hard to focus on learning and being part of what, what goes on. Um, so do the schools, do the schools play a role in sort of propagating um, a way of thinking about community? And, you know, here everything's been politicized. So if you feel a certain way, that makes you a fill in the blank. But this yeah. notion of community that, we, you know, uh, with you, a rising tide raises all ships. If everybody is doing better, you know, everybody's doing better. You know, um, do the schools play a role in shaping students' thinking around that at all? I think they, I think they do from the standpoint of developing a value system <clears throat> that you can, you know, I think you can accomplish it within a school. And I think it travels well outside the school in terms of, you know, we're, we are all in this together. Um, you know, when I was a principal, I could go out into the foyer and, and say, you know what? It's looking a mess out front. You guys think you can do something for that? Oh, yeah, Mr. D, where's the garbage bag? I said, you know, this is our community. You can't be throwing stuff out there. And they go out and gather all the stuff. And I said, don't go around the dumpster and grab a full bag, okay? Um, so, it's, it, you know, in uh, my grade 11s, Every one of them was compelled to do a community service program. So it was 55 hours of instruction, 55 hours of in-community service. And most of them continued way beyond the 55 hours. So it's how you relate within the school, but how does that travel in terms of your relationships outside the school? And if you can be good to yourself and to each other in this setting, why can't that in some way um, inform how you operate uh, in the in the broader world? Um, but I think you have to provide opportunities for that. I think it's a it's a learned thing. It's a trust. It's very much a trust thing. Um, do the kids feel safe coming into your school? Do they feel as if not only they're heard, but they have agency that they can impact on? their life within that school and what they study and how they are together. Um, I think that's critical. Um, you know, you can't have kids that are, are feeling excluded within your building because they don't see themselves there. So you have to, you have to see yourself and you have to be seen to see yourself, I think. So it's a, it's a cultural thing, I believe. You know, we, 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 we say it takes a village to raise a child, but, you know, it really does sound like you all are living that out, Michael. Um, that, that's exciting. It's, it's, it's great to have it as a slogan on a wall or on a website, but to put feet to it, uh, that's, that's what makes a difference. That sounds like uh, great intentionality. Yeah, and I think that, you know, that, that really gives your work purpose. Um, you know, and I always say to people, if I was building a wall, in the morning I start and there's four bricks, and at the end of the day there's ten. In the work we do, 
takes five or ten years to see how it played out. Um, and you know, it, it's gratifying when you when you see um, young people who are now older people um, engaged in important things and and feeling good about who they are. Um, and that's that's the payoff for me. So, so, so Michael, in the years that you were a, a, a principal, did you in 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 the school time or in events that you had um, find ways to celebrate, uh, you know, the differences in culture in your buildings? Was that something that, you know, the government, the board, whoever, you know, played a role in kind of getting you to be more active in, or was that kind of left to you entirely? Um, it was, you know, like the board would have broad strokes around. You know, what are you doing to celebrate uh, inclusion in your building? Uh, but it was up, left up to, to uh, principals pretty much. I'm just, I'm just in my back room because something's bubbling up here. Yeah. Something important. Well, so, so just context for Michael. Uh, he's got a storm going on. Uh, you know, where he is and there's a lot of rain and it's about to all turn into ice and uh, sooner or later snow. So Nova Scotia's kind of gotten pounded recently. Yeah. Um, no, and, you know, what, uh, and I think there was an importance, um, you know, to have celebrations, but, you know, like Black History Month or, or something that would celebrate uh, a particular group, but, you know, I like to have things that were less episodic. I don't know if you can see the ocean in the background there. I can. Very nice. <laughs> um, and I think it was more around a lived experience. Um, you know, how, how do we express ourselves and, and who we are? And do we have to wait for a particular day or a month to do that? Um, and I think... You know, part of that comes from seeing ourselves um, in a safe environment. Where if I if I feel as uh, you know an East Indian male that I want to come in my traditional dress one day and walk down the the hallway, do I feel like I could do that, or will I be open to derision or commentary? Um, so you know, we have kids that would come to school dress the way they wanted to dress, uh, feeling comfortable about who they were, having our cafeterias have representative foods offered. Um, you know, you can get a pate, patty down, down there, you can get curry. So um, how you, you can talk about inclusivity, but how do you live it? Well, that's, you know, that's, how, that's the discussion for sure. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, I, I can remember coaching a football team, uh, <laughs> a junior team, and uh, it was the most inclusive group. We had kids that uh, they had no idea what a. Oops, are you still there? Yep, we're here. Uh, what a football was, and uh, you know, we had Polish kids, East Indian kids, whatever. And I had a defense that was made up of all these kids with no experience at all in football. We called it the Tiger Team. So in the middle of a series, I just called Tiger Team. They run out on the field, and they, all they did was rush. <laughs> the other team was thrown into total disarray. <laughs> and one, one time, I, one of our guys 
he made an interception. He goes, what do you call that when I caught the ball and I'm on defense? I said, it's an interception. <laughs> Again, you know, they're out there and everyone just, like the Tiger team, the rest of the team would go crazy when the Tiger team came out. Like they would be hooting and howling because they didn't know what was going to happen either. <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking about that when you were talking about cricket. You know, and I don't know yeah. how many American high schools have got a cricket team, you know. Um, yeah. But you bring up, I mean, you bring up some interesting points about just standardization of, of education. And, you know, Corey talks a lot about intentionality. But, you know, what what you're, you're taking that word, I think, to a different level uh, in, in mm-hmm. what you're explaining. Don't you, Corey? I mean, it's, it's a. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's wonderful to hear that. So, so Michael, in 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 um, at the end of your career, did you find in working with teacher candidates with uh, young educators that you're finding fewer and fewer of them that want to go into the business because of uh, politics, because of uh, derision in the, in your society around issues uh, in politics? I mean, how is the environment for training educators right now and? Um, are these are these conversations around race open, uh, you know, for for teachers to tackle in their classrooms? Um, yeah, I think that I would say that the teachers are hanging in. I think they're challenged by um, COVID in the last couple of years. Um, I think it's more and more difficult to find administrators that want to put up with um, not not the uh, external politics in society, but the politics within school districts. Um, and uh, again, you know, you and Corey have talked about, um, you know, how do you find administrators? You know, you have these kitty kitty principals who have um, not a, a huge raft of experience as instructional leaders, becoming instructional leaders. Um, and confronting very complex um, issues within schools um, and how much support did they get? You know, how, are they being mentored? Um, are they being um, counseled? Because it's a lonely, it's lonely at the top. You know, at least when you're a vice principal, you've got a vice principal colleague to, to hang with. Um, but when I, when I opened my last school, uh, what I did is, you know, it used to be a principal opening a new school and their year off would have an office at the board office. I said, no, I want to be housed in a school close to where this new school is going to be. So it was a principal calling and I for a whole year. And it was very unique because he would wander down and I'd be working on something. He said, what are you working on? So we talked about it. I said, what's going on with you? He'd say, well, yeah, I've got this problem, staff problem, student issue. What do you think? Very uncommon for us at that level to have someone that you could have those frank, you know, up close and personal conversations with. But that was really important. That helped me as a, and I was an experienced principal, so was he. But what could that not have done for a young person to be with someone who's experienced and who's had the opportunity to, to work in those challenging environments? So, um, I think that we need to explore different models. Um, again, at that new school that I opened, I had a, a feeder school down the way. One day a week, one of my vice principals would be there and the elementary vice principal would be with me 
and then my other one would go to a different feeder school. No money cost nothing to the board, and they were getting cross-panel experience. Plus, they were helping to transition those new students coming in in the subsequent year. They had to understand the curriculum and vice versa. Very simple models that don't cost any money. But there has to be, and it goes back to what Corey says, there has to be an intentionality, and there has to be the willingness to, to go out on a bit of a limb. And it's a considered risk, and it's you know calculated. You, you know, you do your due diligence around all those things. But it's also the exciting part of the job because it's all around education. It's all about gaining experiences. And it's about social justice because if you're getting it, if Joe Moyle or are doing it right in their school, how do you get to scale? How do you get from there to two or three schools or to the system? And we talked about that a lot at Harvard was getting to scale. You know, you've got sound practice here, but it dies there. And is it sustainable? Is it, you know, personality driven or is it a structure that has a life? You know, big systems here struggle with this, Michael. I mean, I think, you know, it's replicating what's working, you know, anywhere, but, you know, you get into some of these big systems and, you know, one, one, just finding enough quality and, you know, opportunity to mentor in the big systems. And Corey works more around, um, you know, M- MPS, the Milwaukee Public School System, and worked in Madison. So, you know, has a better understanding of maybe some of those challenges. But I think standardization there becomes an issue. And so does quality control. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, I think when I left my school system, we, I think we had 26 or 27 secondary schools. And there was a high degree of variability between schools in terms of student success, um, you know, any measure that you wanted to apply. But, um, you know, you want to catch people doing something right. You're not looking to catch someone doing something wrong. Right. And, but, and, and there, there can't be, um, you know, an arrogance. If, uh, as a secondary school principal, if I think Corey or Joseph are doing it better at their school, why wouldn't I want to have that conversation about, like, Joe, how did you get there? Like, what were you thinking? What did you have to put in place? Um, you know, what, what regulations did you have to um, scoot over? Right. So. And, well, it's, it's it, you know, it, it's what gives you hope that the, that the place that the discussion of racism and um you know, education is is properly placed within the school and within the role of the principal to, to execute it. But, you know, part of what, uh, you know, in all of all of our discussions about recruiting and educators, you know, you got to have people who love kids and who see their student population in need of, you know, uh, some some help in in not being isolated and not being seen in you know that you have an administrator that recognizes your culture and who you are and that you can't learn everything um that that you need to in an environment where you don't feel like you belong Mm -hmm. and i think that you know a lot of it comes from confronting our own racism it comes from uh blending our empathy with an action component it's not you know it's not enough to feel it it has you have to be moved to action 
So what's going to activate that? Um, you know, is it solely eternal uh, rewards or is it a reward system from outside? Um, for me, it always came down to anything I did is what's the look in these students' faces? That's it. Do they want to, do they want to be there? Do they feel like this is their community? Do they feel like when they go out to the community that they can manage it and they can impact in a positive way on it? And they're, they're not going to be in any way deficited within that. You know, again, it, the, that Stockdale paradox, you know, they need to understand, uh, you know, it's a difficult time, but they will be successful. They, they do have it within them, but they need, they need a, a structure around that supports them. You know, I could get those students to, I ask them to do anything, they do it because they knew if they asked me to do anything, I'd do it. So. That's a good that's a good place for us to to end our conversation today. But Michael, thanks so much for you know giving us some insight into Canada and the systems there and these issues in Canada. Um, appreciate uh, your time today. Oh well, thank you both. Uh, thank you, Joseph, and thank you, uh, Corey. And Corey, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure talking with you today, Michael. Yeah, maybe we'll talk again sometime. Hope so. You've been listening to Education Conversations with Corey Thompson and Joseph Moylan. Please leave us a comment uh, about the questions that you have or thoughts about future episodes for us on Anchor. Thank you for listening.